Hello and welcome to the Almost LA Podcast. My name is Aiden. And my name is Audra. The mother and son podcasting duo. The duo, (laughs) dynamic duo of podcasting. Last week we talked about the depressing Michael Jackson documentary. At the end of the podcast last week. Do you want to clarify if you were actually crying or not? Because some people have asked me if you were crying. Okay. (laughs) I was fighting back tears towards the end of the podcast. Hardcore. Yes. I think the last thing I said was like a bye or just something sad. Like the Uh, saddest way to um, end the podcast. Bye. I think I, and I was yeah after we tried to after we ended the podcast I definitely started crying for sure yes yeah that was and I ooh. kept vomit in my mouth almost all day <laughs> yeah it's Ugh, such an awful topic it was horrible but at the end of the podcast I mentioned I want to talk about rainbows so we're doing something more sparkly this we uh, are for sure going to talk about multiple rainbows so what's the topic uh, this week we're going to talk about glitter rock. Glitter rock, okay. Do you know what glitter rock is? I didn't even really I mean, know this was a thing. But um, before we get to that, I just want to talk about what uh, we did last weekend, which was we went to Crystalia, which was super funny. Right, it was fun. And this weekend, somebody has a birthday. It's my birthday. Happy birthday to Aiden. Yep. Happy birthday to Aiden. The big 3 <laughs> Oh, my God. If you were 30... Uh, I'll probably be dead. Well, I was talking about this with, with Cole and Zach. We were talking about birthdays. Hi, and Cole he and Zach. Was, and he was saying, like, I can't remember what he said. He said, you look forward to, like, turning, getting to your teens. And then you look forward to, like, being 16, you can drive. 18, you're you an adult. 20, because you, it's 20. Mm-hmm. 21, because you can drink. But then after that, it's, it's like. It's all downhill, the baby. The next big three are, t- like, 30, 40, and 50. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like so you look forward to all these small increments. Uh yeah, I do know. And then and then pretty <laughs> sure you're old. <laughs> pretty sure. Yeah. Newsflash, everyone's old. Uh yeah, everyone Chris, gets old. Crystal Lee was funny. Uh having my birthday on I mean I my birthday's on St. Patrick's Day, which is cool. You're a St. Patrick's Day baby. Yep. I'm gonna be and nineteen. My name's Aiden. Nineteen years old. I'm be nineteen. I'm gonna cry. Yep. So that, that nineteen is the perfect age to get a fake ID. Ugh. <sighs> You and this fake ID. I need somebody just give Aiden a fake ID and be done with it. Please, if any, uh, please DM uh, almost uh, at almost LA on Instagram. So sick of you asking me and me saying no. Any any anywhere you know to get a fake ID or a nice website (laughs) to do it through, please send it to my mom on at almost LA podcast. Don't send it to me. I will turn you into the police. (laughs) So she can tell tell me about them so I can get a fake ID. Nope, I will turn everyone into the police. Ah, almost. Okay, so let's get into this. First of all, I just want to say hi to our new listeners because I know we have a bunch of new listeners, which is super exciting, but makes me very nervous. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, Ellie, wake up. Ellie, Stop falling asleep yeah, to our Ellie podcast. Ellie falls asleep to our podcast, apparently, <laughs> on the couch. Also, make if it I from would... the couch to your bed. Not that hard. You're right. <laughs> hi, Ellie. Okay. We're going to talk about Glitter Rock, which is quite possibly the shortest era of rock music ever. Some say 18 months. Some say two years. 18 months? 18 months. In and out, man. All right. Kind of like glitter. It's on and off. Well, that's not true. Glitter and, stays on your body. But it's body hard for, to get off. Yeah. Like glitter rock is hard to get out of your heart. <laughs> Good <laughs> How do you puns. Like that? <laughs> Mom puns. I'm going to say uh, thanks for, to all the new listeners who tuned into this podcast and immediately just turned it off <laughs> because of that pun. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Um, oh, boy. So when, what year did this... 
Okay. Nice thing. We're going to go across the pond oh, to great. the UK. Okay. It's March 1971. Picture it. I don't know what the UK was in 1971. Somebody, we have a couple of UK people, I think, that they can tell us about it. Um, Mark Bolin, who was the lead singer of the band T-Rex, who is super uber popular over there, and he had a tragic early passing at age 29 in a car accident. So I think he is one of those memorialized, beloved artists in the UK. He went on the BBC's Top of the Pops, which is their kind of weekly music chart TV show. We had like American Bandstand over here. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, where you kind of get on stage and there's girls that kind of sway and listen to your music on TV. Um, Bolin wore on this performance a shiny, like satin sailor outfit and glitter and some eyeliner. And he had kind of... uh, curly, wild, long, like, shoulder-length hair. And this performance was later cited as being uh, the start of glam rock. So over in the UK, it's called glam rock, and then we kind of butcherized it and turned it to glitter rock over here because we have to do everything fancier. (laughs) Yeah, glam rock sounds way cooler. Right, but we have to screw it up like we always do sometimes. Um, So looking back on the outfits, like if you look at this outfit that everybody was freaking out about, it's kind of tame compared to like what exploded out of glam rock, you know, with like David Bowie and stuff. Um, But at the time it was, seemed kind of out there and daring. Um, The T-Rex's song, Get It On, which is what they called it in the UK. And over here we called it Bang A Gong because there was already a song over here called Get It On. Um, Was released in July of 1971 on the T-Rex's album called Electric Warrior. It was written by Bolin and is kind of considered the the rock, glam rock song that solidified like this whole movement coming up. Um, And I'm going to play that right now. This was actually, sorry, a song that I listen to all the time. Ready? Mm -hmm. I'm going to play DJ now. Oh, crap. Any minute. Any second. Any second When I get my Wi-Fi back (laughs) Right. Stand by, worst DJ ever. Okay, here we go. Okay, yeah, I definitely know that song. You do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Isn't that cool? So this, so that they performed that song on the this. No, TV they show performed thing, a or? different song, oh, okay. which was kind of. But that's the same group. Cool. But that was this was like their, um, one of their best songs at the time. Uh, that was the most popular. Mm-hmm. That was considered very glam rock. Um, so the man considered responsible for bringing glam rock. To L.A. specifically, his name is Rodney Bingenheimer. He was the ultimate male groupie. You ever heard of a male groupie? I have not. You will You will now. Okay. Um, there's a documentary about him called The Mayor of Sunset Strip, which came out in 2004. And it's, I watched it. 
it's uncomfortable and heartbreaking <laughs> and interesting and all kinds of weird stuff. So check that out. I think it's just on, uh, I think it's on Amazon Prime and it's also on YouTube. More uncomfortable documentaries. <laughs> well, not uncomfortable in that way. Yeah. He, you kind of feel sorry for him, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second. So let me give you a little history about him, which kind of explains his male groupie title. Rodney was born in Mountain View, California in 1947. Uh, Mountain View's south of San Francisco, Palo Alto area. Um, the nickname Mayor of Sunset Strip was given to him by actor Sal Minio. And Sal Minio was, side note, um, in the movie Rebel Without a Cause, opposite James Dean, which you know that movie. That's why I threw that in there. Okay. Uh, Rodney's parents divorced when he was three, and his father, his name was Bing, Bing Bingenheimer. That <laughs> tells you anything about how you feel about that family. Glamorous. <laughs> yeah. He stated that he didn't see much of Rodney after the divorce. He remarried, and they interview um, Rodney's dad and his stepmom, and they are very stiff, vanilla, detached, like, at one point, he like compliments his wife, and she turns and looks at him, and she's like, "That's the first time you've complimented me in 47 years," mm. and it's like super uncomfortable, awkward, and he's like looking at her like, "Yeah," and I might slap you across the face, and I'll never do it again. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. You're done. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Um, <laughs> Bing had wanted to become an actor, which never happened, but he was always uh, kind of enthralled with celebrity, and he to kind of fulfill that, started following around at the time that uh, in the 60s, 50s and 60s, celebrity golf tournaments were really popular, like Bob Hope, Dean Martin, you know. Um, so he would like follow these guys around on the, the golf circuit to kind of get his celebrity fix. And in this documentary, everybody's kind of like, so they shot this documentary over a period of like six years, and everyone in this that's affiliated with this is kind of in this 60s time warp. It's kind of their furniture, the, what they're dressed in. Um, it's kind of strange. Uh, so Rodney's mom, she never remarried, and she worked nights as a waitress in lounges, and she was also, like, obsessed with celebrities and was an autograph hound. So she was one of those that was, had a, autograph books, had tons of people autographing it, would drive all over the place looking for celebrities. So Rodney, um, you know, grew up around these two parents who he – really didn't spend a lot of time with. He was pretty much alone all the time, you know, with his mom working at night. He was a small kid. He was bullied, beat up a lot. Literally everyone they talked to, they were like, oh, yeah, I remember Rodney. He got beat up all the time. <laughs> it's like all they said about that him. That sucks. <laughs> yeah. So he would he would spend his nights alone flipping through all these celebrity magazines that his mom had, and he had this huge crush on actress, singer Connie Stevens, who was super popular at the time. And when Rodney was 16, his mom drove him down to L.A. and – with a suitcase and dropped them off on Connie Stevens' doorstep and was like, get her autograph, see you later. And he didn't see her again for six years. Connie Stevens wasn't home. And so the, the whoever answered the door said, she's not here. She's on shooting her TV show or whatever she's doing. So Rodney just took a suitcase and wandered around L.A. and not really sure how he survived at that point. But So his mom just dropped him off in just L.A. Just him off with a suitcase. And took off, completely abandoned And him. he didn't see her for six years. Didn't see her for six years. Wow. So she was crazy. And his dad, they asked his dad and stepmom, they're like, well, were you worried about Rodney in Hollywood? They're like, well, we didn't really have much contact with him. We were worried, but 
you know, it was very dismissive, like uncomfortable, like they clearly didn't care. Nobody cared, which is very sad. Um, so somehow, and he doesn't like to talk about that time. They keep asking him about his childhood and he gets this very like kind of just far away look in his eyes and he just shuts down. He just kind of like looks off to the distance. So it's clearly a very, very painful time. Um, you know, I, he's very introverted, very meek, you know, he's quiet. Um, but he, he comes across as very sweet too. Uh, so at this time, you know, in LA, a lot of kids were just running away from home. It was kind of that time in the sixties, um, you know, hippie, whatever, they would go off to San Francisco, LA and just kind of take off. And I think a lot of people were crashing at other people's houses or they'd sleep wherever they could find. And I kind of have a feeling that's what he was doing. Um, you know, but he was drawn to the sunset strip because the celebrity obviously, and somehow, I don't know how, but he met Sonny and Cher and he became at first kind of an errand boy for them and then kind of their live-in publicist. So I'm not really sure what they did for him, but they interviewed Cher in this documentary and she said that Sonny felt sorry for him and she was kind of like a mother figure to him, I think. I think he was constantly looking in these celebrities for like the love and attention that he never got at home, obviously. I mean, it's very, if I'm going to be an armchair psychologist, that's what I would assume that was going on basically through his whole life. That's where he kind of got his attention is from these celebrities. Um, you know, so I think a lot of people kind of took him in and, and took care of him. He, um, he started trying to become an actor, trying to, you know, do all these kinds of things. And he eventually became a stand in for Davy Jones on the monkeys TV show. And I don't know if you know anything about that TV show. A lot of people do, but Davy Jones and him, if you back then you, you put them right next to each other, they looked exactly like same haircut, same size. So, um, and he was actually in one of the episodes where Davy Jones had like a twin or something, um, which I vaguely remember. And he had this page boy haircut, which he kind of kept throughout his life. So do you know what a page boy haircut is? I do not. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the Beatles where they have like the blunt, real blunt bangs and then it kind of comes straight down kind of in curled under like to your chin. Oh yeah. So like you look like a coconut kind of thing. A coconut? Yeah. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Okay. Great, let's move on. Coconut hair. Coconut hair. He also became a rep at some point for Mercury uh, and Capitol Records. And when he was doing that stuff, uh, he met David Bowie. And his job was to just kind of take David Bowie around L.A. and show him the hot spots, you know, clubs and places to hang out. But by 1971, uh, Rodney was a little over L.A. and was always fascinated with London and decided to go out there and and he rung up Bowie and Bowie took him to this glam rock club called The Cellar and it was in a subway station and that's where Rodney for the first time saw a DJ playing two turntables at one time um, at the club and he was completely hooked on that and him and Bowie uh, kind of just mutually came to the decision that Rodney should go back to L.A. and Bowie's like, you should start a nightclub like this in L.A. and bring the music, you know, the glam rock music that you like so much from here and you know, into L.A. So that's what he did. So there was bands at the time, the big bands in the glam rock movement in, in England that were going on were T-Rex, which I just played a few, Slade, Martha Hoople, and The Suite. So I'm going to play you a song from The Suite, which... I didn't even know I knew but until I heard it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this song. <clears throat> Sorry. So this is Fox on the Run by The Sweet. 
Yeah, I definitely know this one too. Mm-hmm. There you go. Oh, is a uh, twisted Fox sister considered uh, glam rock, or what is that? Twisted sister would be considered, and like Queen are ones that are, cons- uh, are considered like coming out of glam rock. But yeah, they're more like eighties. Twisted Sister was more like eighties, okay. kind of hairbandish, yeah. but that all that stuff came out of this glitter glam rock. Because it, it has like the kind of the same sound, right? You know, yeah, yeah. I knew that song too. I have that song makes me think of my older brother, who's eleven years older than me, blow drying his hair um, into like a full on feathered back hairdo in the seventies, listening to that song. Really? Was would Lance yeah. listen to that? For sure. Oh boy. Yep. Shout out to him, even though he probably doesn't know what a podcast is. He has no idea what a podcast <laughs> is. He barely can use his phone. He just started using an emoji. Oh, wow. Which okay. emoji does he use? Um, The smiley face emoji. Mm, okay. It's very vanilla. Or the thumbs up emoji. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the ones I use, too. I mean, you know, he's getting into okay. it. So Rodney came back to L.A. and he opened a, a club that was very short-lived it lasted three months he called it the e-club which was supposed to be for england but nobody got it so people were like i'm not going to that place (laughs) and so he rebranded himself moved down the street to uh 7561 sunset boulevard which was a karate um class place for a long time i think that was a yogurt shop but it's right down there by the guitar center Mm kind of by your old elementary school Gardner Street Elementary, shout out. It's literally right around the corner from there. Really? So that's kind of the area it is is in. It was a total, and he called it. So E-Club didn't work out. He called it Rodney Bingenheimer's English Disco. Big, huge neon lights all in the front. Took up the whole front of the the club was the the name of it because it said said the whole thing on there. Rodney Bingenheimer's English Disco. All right. There's no question what it was. Or who, who owned it? You hit it on the nose. Don't use it, E. E, yeah. yeah. It was a total hole in the wall. It's, it's small. Um, mirrors everywhere. And the VIP room, which everybody laughed about in this documentary because it wasn't even a room. It was like you walk in and like to the right, there was like a step up, you know, just like one little step up and kind of like a raised floor. And they put a couch right there, like a kind of a big couch with a velvet rope in front of it. But literally everyone was standing right next to you so it wasn't really separate it was just kind of almost like a hilarious version of vip um that wasn't really a vip and then he he was the disc jockey and played music that really no one else was playing in la at the time he had a really good ear for um like music that was easy to dance to like that had a hook and you know, in the documentary when they're interviewing him, they're like, you know, wh- why do you think you're so good at like picking these songs up? Because he's not like a, he's not like this very charismatic guy. He's just a quiet dude, you know, but he, I think because his childhood was so miserable, he said he kept, over and over again, he'd be like, I just like positive things. I just want things to be happy. So I think he was just drawn to this happy dance music, which was perfect for that time. Cause that's what everybody kind of wanted to do to take a departure from this um, like stoned out rock that everybody had been doing in the sixties where they're like get high and they just sit around and listen to these long drawn out guitar solos and mm-hmm. songs that went on for ever and ever and ever. And these songs were about three minutes tops. They were fast. They had catchy hooks and, and uh, 
they didn't want to like be stoned out anymore. They wanted to do quaaludes and booze. <clears throat> so that was like the big go-to was just to get like completely spazzed out and dance. All right. And he served like imported beer from England. I guess they had some English food, but I have no idea how they even cooked there. It's so small. Fish and chips. Fish and chips. Yeah. Gross stuff. Um, the club was really upbeat, lively, and very in your face. So it was a total departure from like the hippies, 60 kind of stuff. And along with that came the clothes and the, and the whole attitude of that. So androgyny was in. Um, so along with the civil and women's rights movements in the 60s was also the gay rights movement. And in the early 70s, California was finally starting to decriminalize homosexual acts. And this was reflected in, in these new clubs where it was okay to be bisexual and kind of be out there with your sexuality, um, whether you were straight or bi or, or gay or whatever it was. And then, um, so, you know, hence David Bowie, who was uh, out and by and dressed outrageous. And um, it was just a time where people were were forcing, you know, like their parents or whoever to kind of question what they were sexually as a shock and awe kind of thing. Um, it was very in your face. So instead of like this hippy dippy, free love twirling in a meadow kind of like, look at me, I have no top on, I'm twirling in a meadow with a flower in nature. It was like this, look at me, I have my top off. I'm gyrating in your face. I'm looking at myself in a mirror. It's self-centered. Like everybody talked about how like it was about me, 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 you know, kind of yeah. look at me, look how outrageous I am. Tall platform shoes were in, brightly colored hair, spiked hair started to become a thing, gold lame, all the girls wore lingerie, men wore lingerie, heavy eye makeup and lipstick on both boys and girls. You couldn't tell who was who kind of thing. Um, and, some, and then also girls that didn't do the makeup thing, you know, went to the boy look and that's, you know, the girls, some of the girls look like uh, boys. And so it, anything to do to kind of blur the gender identity at the time. And David Bowie, obviously his, was a poster boy of this with his alter ego, uh, Ziggy Stardust. So I'm gonna play you, R.I.P. David Bowie, Starman. Mm. By Ziggy. Absolute Stardust. banger. Okay, ready? How good I'm being with my DJ stuff. <laughs> so proud of myself. Starman. Such a good song. That's a good song. It's not even like, but you know, compared to the other stuff I already played, it's not even that hard, you know. Like rock, better. more rocky? Well, even like, like the T-Rex and stuff, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, he has more <clears> of like <throat> a, I don't know, he has his own vibe. 
I listen to some Bowie. He does. I read a really, I read an interesting article um, in Rolling Stone from, I don't know, 70 something in Cameron Crowe, you know, the Cameron Crowe, the movie director now, he used to be, um, he did the, uh, um, he did the movie where Brendan Lee got shot. Uh, I have no idea. Okay, whatever. Um, he used to be a writer for Rolling Stone, and he did a really f- famous interview with um, David Bowie. And he, the whole article, he's complaining that he never wanted to be a musician. He only wanted to be an actor. Music was just something he had to do to pay the bills, you know. Because so he was he was always strung out and being dopey on these like interviews. So don't read any of that stuff if you idolize him, because it'll probably piss you off. No, nah, I feel like it would make it would just like give me mad respect for David Bowie even more. Like he just does not care. Doesn't care. Kind of yeah, that's true. Yeah. He didn't care. Okay, so these. Clubs became like teenage playgrounds. Um, why do why, this is where okay, our, is this like last time where there's like a bunch of twelve year olds that hang out? This like weird place. Like, why are there like well, so many young kids? <laughs> Hold on, it's so weird. <laughs> it is very weird and upsetting. So, as you just said, it's almost like you can read my mind. This is where I our, our idea of like the groupie, like the rock star groupie, so almost famous. You know, Kate Hudson's. I can't remember what her name is in that movie, but her groupie status was totally based on the girls of this time. Okay. Um, and, you know, it's your typical <clears throat> girls throwing themselves at rock stars, waiting for them in hotel rooms, strung out, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, these kids were between uh, 12 and 15. And anyone older was considered like ancient. So uh, there was somebody that was they were interviewing that was like 25 that would hang out at this English disco. And she was like, I was uncomfortable and was getting like leered at, like I should get out of there. And she like bailed. So weird. (laughs) But ironically, you know, all the rock stars that were hooking up with these 12 and 15 year olds were 23, 24. Um, so, so one of the most famous groupies, her name was Sable star. And she was a rich kid from Palos Verdes. And these young girls, young girls groupies were called baby groupies, which is That's absolutely very looking back on very it. Very weird. Some of them some of them called themselves glitter kids. Um, and the ones that hung out specifically at Rodney's were called uh, Rodnets, which is very hard to say. <laughs> uh, there's a, a gazillion pictures online with these groupies. Uh, from the English club and other places like Whiskey Go-Go and everything um, where you can see kind of how they were dressing and, and hanging on everybody. And, and ba- you know, but they're having a blast. I mean, I read some interviews with some of the girls that were groupies. And they're like, I have no regrets looking back. Yes, there was an obvious age difference, but, you know, this is what I'm in. The, of course, these are the ones that were the most famous. I'm sure the girls that weren't quite so famous probably have a different story. Um, so Sable claimed that she dated and I'm using massive air quotes here. Okay. <laughs> Dating. Right. <laughs> okay. Get my get my drift. Uh, Jeff Beck, David Bowie, Mick Jagger, Rod Stewart, Mark Bolin, and Alice Cooper, to name a few, all before she was 17. Ooh. Ooh. High school was not a priority to these girls. They blatantly said, like, I was having this crazy rock and roll lifestyle. Why would I go back to high school yeah. and deal with, like, regular teenage boys? I agree. So they were kind of you know, in that sense, missed out on, like, a normal teenage time. Um, and these guys were all, like I just said, in their 20s, early 20s and mid-20s. 
um, Sable and got her younger sister into it. Her name was Coral, and she was actually younger than Sable. So when these girls were 12, 13, and 14, you know, they were dating these guys. I think at 15, you were kind of considered getting up there and already kind of been around the block a little bit. And by 17, it was like you were over it and doing something else. Um, Iggy Pop dated the sisters at the same time. They kind of, he was kind of home base for the two girls. Uh, and everyone was being shared and frankly exploited. So it wasn't just um, in the 90s, I guess. Parents were seemingly fine with it. There's a story um, of a, an interview I read with another famous groupie. Her name is Lori Maddox. Jimmy Page uh, was hanging out with her so much and she was just not going to school. And her mom was a single parent to, to I think, two or three kids. Um, and she was at his hotel so much and not going home that he called up the mom and, and wanted to meet her and asked if it was okay if he was hanging out with his, you know, her daughter so much. And she said, I think it's great. And she was 15 at the time. They'd already been together for a while. I think they started seeing each other when she was 14. Um, and her mom was actually thrilled and said she l was likening her daughter to Priscilla Presley. So basically okay. moms from the 60s to the 90s are one big no, 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 no. Yeah. No, no, no. So we're Cut all, the, I mean, I'm assuming th that these girls weren't just dressed like regular 12 to 15 year old girls. They were done up no, in like no, a no, bunch no. of makeup and all these weird clothes and everything. No. Probably trying to no. make themselves look older. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I have think a the, I don't even think it, I don't even think it was they wanted to look older. I think the idea was look how young I look but I'm wearing a costume of like platform heels because half of them weren't even wearing shirts and they'd wear like underwear with, you know, stockings. And, um, you know, it, it, it was the young, the youngness is what they were kind of promoting, how young and free they were. And this is what I'm doing and you can't tell me what to do. Kind of thing. That's crazy. And that's kind of what the dudes were into, I guess. Um, so speaking of young girls, uh, one of the most famous kind of girl bands that kind of came out of this era that didn't last very long, but they were impactful, were the Runaways. And Sharif Curry was the lead singer of this band, and she was only 15. So just, you know, it was just, you know, the girls, it was just what they were doing. And this was in 1975. So they kind of were around this um, time period in the early 70s as like, you know, 75 by that point. You know, the glam rock had been around a little bit and was almost on its way out, and she was already 15. So, again, she was probably hanging out in these clubs when she was 12, 13, 14. And by the time she was 15, she was already ready to be a lead singer of a band. Um, the members of the whole band were Cherie, Lita Ford, who went on to have, like, a pretty successful solo career, Sandy West, Jackie Fox, and Joan Jett, who went on to be, like, superstardom fame. We all know. Um, and they were a staple of the English disco and Rodney was one of the first one to play their music all the time. So back then, you know, you had to keep in mind, you only really heard new music at a club or on the radio. And DJs were the go-to, you know. So now where you guys are supposed to slip your, like, flash drives to a rapper or, you know, a producer or something, back then it was like you got to get your, your stuff to a DJ because he's going to put it on the air because that's the only way anyone's going to hear it. Mm -hmm. And so Rodney, you know, not being this charismatic person, he was the go-to to get people's music played. So whether they liked him or not, it was the only way you could get on the radio or at a club. So the Runaways made three albums before Cherie left the band. And ironically, as Joan Jett said um, in an interview, it was partly because Cherie was performing in her underwear, basically nothing, and she was so underage that it was kind of, 
even in 75, they were trying to depart from that whole, that, that was already kind of old at that point. Yeah. So they kind of broke up and, and they all went their own way. And, you know, and Joan Jett, um, she had a heart. I, I want to do a whole episode on her cause she's awesome. Um, but the other girls were kind of picked up by all kinds of people, but Joan Jett was considered the, the least, you know, desirable of the group. And, but she ended up clawing her way to the top and being the most successful. Um, so the biggest hit, one of the biggest hits they had, uh, the Runaways had was a song called Cherry Bomb. And it was actually written just on the fly the day that Cherie auditioned for the band to give her something to sing. And it ended up being one of their biggest hits. So I'm going to play I Cherry Bomb song by too. the Runaways. Oh, you know this song? Of course. It's an awesome song. Okay, here we go. This is Cherry Bomb. Yeah, she's that's I feel like that that uh the lyrics of that song embody the entire movement. Totally it's just like completely Hello, in your Dad. face. Hello, mom. Yeah, exactly. I'm your cherry bomb and she's like fifteen. If you if you if you if you cherry yeah. bomb. That's a great <laughs> that's basically song. Basically what she's saying. Yeah, it, it's interesting that, you know, in the sixties people were like, My parents don't understand me, I gotta get out of here, you know, to like you know, just running away in your VW bus to like slamming doors and kicking in a window before you leave in the 70s yeah. you know what I mean yeah. like it was just a more violent kind of like now I've really had it you kind of thing um so another one of the only kind of recognized female glam rock artists at the time was one of Joan Jett's biggest influences her name was Susie Quatra um she was from Detroit and she grew up like playing music with her siblings and stuff and she all she was known for wearing her leather jumpsuit which she always wore she didn't really wear it she wasn't like glammed up she just wore a leather jumpsuit her hair was kind of whatever but she was just like badass and she self-described herself as a hellcat and she looked like the girl kind of next door but she played this thunderous bass guitar and uh she was actually one of the first female bass players to become a major rock star i'm gonna play you one of my favorite songs of hers called can the can um, she actually went on to have kind of a, a, a quieter kind of style after this, um, but this is Can the Can.
I think that's the only one I haven't heard. Yeah. I don't know if I've heard that one before. She was she wasn't as popular over here. Um she was huge in like the UK and kind of overseas in different places. Mm-hmm. Um she's like total rock star. You can her voice, the lyrics, if you look at the lyrics of some of her songs are super cool. Um so that kind of wraps up the quick genre of glitter rock. Rodney ended up closing the club in 1975 and went on to be a K-Rock DJ. K-R-O-Q, 106.7, L.A. He was a DJ for 45 or 41 years. Oh, my God, really? Yeah. On the yep. radio? Yeah, he was, you know, he had the popular time slots, and because he was such an icon, they eventually they kind of kept moving him later and later and later, and then I think the last, like, hours he had was from, like, midnight to 3 in the morning, you know? Yeah. But, um you know, he was super influential and, and K-Rock apparently was kind of struggling with who they were when they first started out and Rodney kind of gave him the identity that they needed. So he, you know, they were, they, he said, you know, he, he ended up, you see this, this documentary, he had like this, you know, his apartment, like, you know, kind of like yours, you know, he didn't have any money. He, he wasn't in it for the money. Yeah. I think he just wanted the attention to be around celebrities, feel loved by groupies and, and, People knowing who he was kind of gave him some, you know, his life, some validity, I guess. Um, so he said, you know, he's like, yeah, it'd be nice to have money. But he's like, you know, everyone was good to me was basically how he kind of summed up his life. Because he's still alive. He's 70, 71, 72 now. That's crazy. He, he's not even that old. No. He, um, well, yeah, he got dumped out and dumped in L.A. at 16. Yeah. He, um, he's very famous for kind of like wearing the same kind of mod you know black suit same hair he still has the same hair um he drives the same car he's driven for years and he goes to the denny's on sunset every day at the same time he eats at the same places every day so like if you really wanted to go find him you could absolutely find him and i'm sure he would be psyched if you were like what's up rodney like he'd be probably thrilled maybe i'll go maybe i'll go try and find him and hang out with him at denny's that i i could i'm not gonna say it here but i know exactly where he'd be probably that's what i'm gonna do that's what i'm gonna do next week i'm gonna find rodney (laughs) that'd be awesome Oh, my God. If you got a picture with him, I would freak out. <laughs> so in 1910, 1910, in 1910, we went here. back to, <laughs> we all had the plague. Um, in 2010, Rodney got a star on the Walk of Fame, and it's for, for, the, for radio, Hollywood for radio, and it's at the 7,000 block of Hollywood Boulevard. So if anybody wants to go check out his star. Um, and the, the man who started it all, Rock Bol- uh, Mark Bolin, who we talked about at the beginning, he declared quote, glam rock is dead, end quote, in 1973, two years after it started. In 1974, at the Hollywood Palladium, uh, Rodney hosted a death of glitter night to kind of, it was the funeral for for glitter rock. Iggy Pop, the New York Dolls, and Silverhead played. Um, I have to say, the New York Dolls were another huge um, starter of the whole, uh, you know, glam rock, but they were east coast out of new york and so i don't want anybody thinking if they're listening to this like you left out a huge you know group you know because we're doing la and west coast i really focused on kind of the bands that played in la and that kind of came from la um and new york dolls were obviously in new york even though they were in la all the time they actually went to the english disco all that kind of stuff um so out of the the glam rock um genre came punk and disco um, Rodney introduced what he called Dirty Glitter on his radio program at KR- KRQ in 1976, and that was the precursor to punk. 
the two genres kind of splintered off of there. So the the kids who wanted to get more vulgar, more hard, you know, was spiked up their hair and tore their clothes, went the punk way. And you can hear in those songs, you can hear in certain artists the punk influ- you know, where punk was influenced by that and just took it harder. Yeah. And then the kids who just wanted to keep wearing big hair and designer jeans and more glamorous went disco. And you can hear the you know the the disco in that too, and you can hear distinctively where where it could totally split off into two completely separate things. Right. Well, next week, so, do you know what we're doing next week, episode wise. I don't know yet. Maybe we should do you, something on punk, because that would be do, very I, fun. yeah. I've, I've had punk in the back of my mind. We could do punk. So that was the glam glitter rock, short lived genre. All right. So I'm gonna bring your I, you know you requested rainbows. Right. Right. So. I tied in your rainbow thing okay. to a little history about the platform shoes, which I thought was a little interesting and would give you a little smile on your face to have your rainbows and my little pony or whatever you want. <laughs> um, so platform shoes, if anybody is wondering where the hell do these things come from, have actually been around since the ancient Greece, 15th century Venice and 18th century Japan. Um, they crossed many cultures, but basically had the same function. They were to keep your feet up and off either dirt, water, or poop in ancient streets. Mm. Make sense? So in Venice, when women would walk around with their dresses and stuff on to keep everything from getting wet because the Venice streets were wet, you know, they had platform shoes to elevate them. Right. Um, in in uh, Japan, um, a lot of women who would who would work like in the streets or would work in homes to kind of keep dirt and stuff off their cleaning stuff would wear the elevated shoes and then in like in Greece it was basically you know back in the day horses and animals or whatever pooped everywhere on the streets before people had like people to clean stuff like that up and so it was basically to keep grime and poop and stuff off your your dresses to be blunt about it um and 1930, we kind of entered the era of the modern uh, platform shoe. And in L.A., a designer named Salvador Ferragamo, which most people who know about shoes have heard of him, he created the Rainbow Platform, which was created for Judy Garland. And it was a tribute to her song, Over the Rainbow from the Wizard of Oz. Okay. And before... His shoes, um, the platform was actually made out of layered leather to get the height. So he just played, you know, people would place leather on top of leather on top of leather. But because of the fabric rations of World War II, which we talked about in the Zoot Suit episode, mm-hmm. um, Farag- Farragamo used cork and wood, yeah, which is actually cork. what they still use today. Yeah. So around 1967, platforms had a resurgence um, with teens and it carried into the disco era. Even men wore them. And famously, another DJ named Chuck E. Starr which apparently everybody back then, Sable Star, Chucky Star, there was another star. Stardust. Oh, Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> yeah. uh, everyone was so self-centered, they named themselves Star. He famously wore 14-inch platforms to the English disco. 14-inch. <laughs> okay, whatever you want to do, bro. 14 inches, yeah. I'm looking at a piece of paper, like a printer paper right now, mm-hmm. which I believe is 11 inches or something like that. So I can't imagine... How he would have, that's basically like wearing stilts, I think. Right. Yep. Wow, that's crazy. 
So there you go. Well, good. That we ended your... with rainbows. I feel way better than I did at the end of last week's episode. Yes, you should. It was fun. Yes. That was fun. I was originally going to do Joan Jett this week, and then I kind of went – I when I was looking up where she started from, I went down this Rodney Bingenheimer rabbit hole, so I kind of went off track. But, yeah, if you want to do punk next week, let's get into punk. I'm down. That would be a fun episode. I like punk rock. Yeah. We can do punk, and we can spike up our hair. Or not. Okay. Either, either All right, not. everybody. Thanks for thanks listening. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Almost LA Podcast any... and Twitter at Almost LA Podcast. Twitter. Yeah, I know. We have, oh my God, we have five followers on Twitter. That's We're a lot. crushing Twitter. Please follow us on Twitter. <laughs> we need the Twitter followers, clearly. <laughs> I'm not even sure I know how Twitter works. Yeah, I don't so. either. I never use Twitter. But you know what? Maybe Twitter. we can ask Donald Trump for some advice because that seems to be all he uh, does. Yeah, let's Sorry. not. Sorry. If you yeah. like Trump, no. Dad, don't listen to this podcast. You like Trump. <laughs> Except Nana. Except Nana. Sorry, yeah, Nana. So, <laughs> love, sorry, we Nana. love you, Nana. We love you, Nana. Despite, despite it. <laughs> I don't think they Okay, if anybody it. has any requests, punk requests, yeah. if we're going to do that next week, let me know. I'll, I'm for sure up. sending a bunch of requests in. You yeah. are? Okay. I have a bunch of things. That There's so many different topics we could go. I mean, you could really start in this late 70s, the 80s, or kind of even the 90s. You could even go into like the whole Nirvana thing with it. There's kind of a lot we could talk about. Well, I'm saving Nirvana. Be quiet. Okay. Yeah, actually, okay. we should do a full separate Nirvana. Yeah. Good point. We'll do a two-parter. All right. Thanks for listening. Okay. Follow us on all social media platforms. Um, and have a good day. Peace out, bro. Bye.